of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. This is a very unusual show. Normally, when I talk to my guests, they are somewhere else. Sometimes on this planet, we talk to them with a telephone. We talk to them with Skype, okay? But we very rarely have the guests in here, only on two previous occasions. One with Tim Beckley, the one, the only Tim Beckley. Thank God he's the only Tim Beckley. One and only, yeah. That's right. The one and only Tim Beckley <laughs> was here and regaled us. And then we had John Burroughs, one of the... Oh, yeah, I know. Van Waters yes, witnesses. I interviewed him myself. Right. And that's Antonio Honeas, by the way, who's a longtime friend who I knew from New York City. And it turns out he's one of the really extraordinary guiding lights in the UFO field, longtime researcher. And we're going to go into that. And of course, our co-host this week is also sitting here. Yeah, check that out. With a Western hat. Yep. That's right. And a dinosaur uh, fossil bolo. Don't call me a dinosaur. <laughs> My God, the guy calls me a dinosaur. Ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you. We sit here, we do a serious radio show. The Powercast is one of the most serious shows out there. We are not just in it for the buck, although we don't mind making a couple on the that way. That would be nice. Sure. We're not in it just for the buck, but, you know, we try to be serious. And then Chris walks in here with the hat, and he looks, he's trying to be like Indiana Jones or something. No, it's a dinosaur fossil bolo. I'm wearing it around my neck so that if you need to, you can grab it and squeeze later. Well, that was something I'm tempted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Antonio. Yes, Dean. What attracted you to the UFO mystery? Well, you know, I originally come from Chile, and I came to this country in 1975. Actually, I was born in, in New York because my dad used to work at the UN. And when things got a little rough in Chile, you know, with the military dictatorship of uh, uh, Pinochet back in 73, I figured that since I was born in, in the States, uh, I had a the opportunity of uh, becoming an American and the Chilean passport was terrible back then and the American passport was good so I decided to come and uh, now that's a question too if you're born in America you're an American no matter what yes okay I, I guess this is a big issue now with the illegals or whatever but uh, but you know in my case was was different so I came in 75 I was a science uh, journalist in uh, in Chile before coming here I was writing for like a weekly magazine doing the science column and I was wasn't interested in UFOs in the least. It, well, actually, I had read one book. Uh, I was open-minded about the um, paranormal. I had written some stories about parapsychology and, uh, you know, archaeology, Easter Island, things like that. So I come here, and, and by 1977, um, I was living in New York City. And I happened to see, uh, this was like a series of coincidences or synchronicities that happened. My brother had sent me this uh, newspaper clipping uh, about the, and you probably might have heard of this case, it's, it's quite famous, the Corporal Valdez case. It was a, a, an army patrol in Chile where the guy had sort of instead of a missing time, a gaining time where he, he, he encountered the UFO 
And then after that, he had like a five-day growth on his beard. He basically spent five days doing something, but it was only a few minutes of Correct. time transpired. Yeah. And sure. there were other witnesses, though. The other witnesses didn't go into the UFO, so they didn't experience that. But they saw the corporal, their leader, disappearing into towards the object. It was at night, so they couldn't see it that clear. Well, to make the story short, I published an article about it. And uh, because the same day that I got the newspaper clippings, I happened to see on the newsstand, which was called the Gem Spa was a famous East Village newsstand in 2nd Avenue and 8th Street. And I happened to see an alternative newspaper called the New York Daily Planet, which was published by Mike Luckman, which you probably heard of uh, the guy that did a book called Alien Rock more recently. So anyway, I figured I was trying to make it in this country as a journalist. I had no connections, no money, no nothing. And, but this was an alternative paper. I figure here I don't need, you know, uh, I can just walk in and probably, you know, they'll take, maybe they'll take my article. You figure they have no standards. Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it was an alternative paper. I didn't need to call, you know, my cousin who knew the owner or something like that. You didn't have to yeah. present the resume. Now. Right, no, no, exactly. Okay. It was worth a shot anyway. So I walked in, and sure enough, the guy, Mike, uh, was interested and published my article. And that's really how I got started. So that was in 1977. Now, this was a great, exciting period, which for now is like ancient history for most people. But within a year or so, you had a lot of things going on. You had the, the UFO hearing of the United Nations in 1978, which became the first UFO event I ever attended. So I started in high class, you know, I met Heineck, Valet, and uh, all at once. Went downhill from there. Yeah, well, uh, what do you mean? Then well, you went, then well, you went, you went when the That's correct. After they <laughs> overthrew Prime Minister Gary, the thing was over. And it, then Tim Beckley came along. Uh, well, yeah, I met Tim Beckley around that period. Uh, I met Mosley, whom you know, and um, eventually I met Keel and Hopkins and, you know, um, everybody that was in New York City. And uh, then I started writing for the magazines, the pulp magazines, like UFO Report, and eventually I made it to UFO Report. My first one, and I was so proud of it, was Ideals UFO Magazine. You, maybe you remember it or not. It was a pulp. It's similar to the other one. We're taking a journey through history, ladies and gentlemen. I remember these magazines. If you remember, there were actually several yeah, newsstand magazines yeah. dealing with the subject of UFOs. It wasn't just UFO magazine, a certain other new magazine we'll mention shortly. It was a whole Correct. bunch of them. Yeah. And, uh, well, eventually, you know, I, I, I became acquainted with the various UFO organizations. I joined some of them, like MUFON and uh, so on. You know, I went on to travel and give lectures and so on. And uh, and then more recently, of course, I got hired by this new company here in, uh, in the Phoenix area, Open Minds Production, and that's how I ended up in the West. I had never lived in the West. I was always an East Coast person. But uh, it's I like a culture shock. Yeah, it is a little bit. Of course, I didn't come directly from New York. I did live for about three years in Northern Virginia in the Washington, D.C. area. So that was kind of the decompression period, you know, because it was different from New York, but it's still the East. We'll talk about that magazine later on. Now, did you come to specialize in a particular aspect of researching UFOs? Initially, my sort of expertise, it was only for the reason because I was, uh, I, I was originally from South America, so I could read this, the language. So my, a lot of my first articles were about uh, South American UFO cases, only because, like I said, I could read the newspaper reports and stuff from, from Chile or Argentina, whatever. And uh, I, that's my 
first articles were usually on that. But then, as I became more and more involved, eventually I, I, I branched into all kinds of types of uh, phenomena, you know, within the UFO. And uh, I eventually I became much more international. I worked in Japan. I worked for a Japanese uh, magazine in the 1990s. I was one of the co-authors of the UFO briefing document, This, uh, w w which was part of the Lawrence Rockefeller. And, right, and uh, I wanted to ask you also how you came to write that. How did Lawrence Rockefeller come to commission this yeah. kind of study? Well, Lawrence Rockefeller had a fascination with um, all these, um, the paranormal in general. And he started, I believe in the 80s, financing a lot of research uh, mostly through Scott Jones, who had an outfit called the Human Potential Foundation in the Washington, D.C. area. And Scott Jones had been an aide to Senator Claiborne Pell, who was an important political figure from a senator from Rhode Island. And so this was the beginning, I guess, for, for Rockefeller. So initially he was mostly doing uh, parapsychology research. But as you know, all these phenomena are, are somewhat related, and eventually it shifted into the area of UFOs. There was a period in the early 90s when Scott Jones, an attorney who Chris knows, uh, called Henry Diamond, who was working for Rockefeller, and uh, Mr. Rockefeller himself, were very involved in lobbying the, the White House, and specifically the, um, the science advisor at the White House, whose name right now I, I forgot, but uh, Gibbons, I think it's John Gibbons. And they had some meetings, and the idea was to get um, the Clinton people to release a lot of documents and mostly what at the time people were looking for was the Roswell case. But that got diffused when the government said, yeah, we're going to release the Roswell case. And But that turned out to be the mogul explanation. It was uh, the investigation and the conclusion yeah. du jour. Yeah, yeah. right. Case so, closed. Case closed, right. So then uh, what happened is then Rockefeller figured that, okay, that avenue was spent. So nothing else was, was coming from there. So he decided to shift gears and to commission his own report, among many other things, because he was also giving money to various uh, researchers. And this was coordinated by Marie Galbraith, who was uh, not Bootsy. your... Yeah, Bo better known as Bootsy, who's not your run-of-the-mill ufologist. She was the wife... With a name like that, I wouldn't think yeah, she would be. Well, she was a socialite. She was the wife of the former ambassador of the United States to France during the Reagan administration, who was also a cousin, I believe, of John Kenneth Galbraith, the Nobel Prize uh, economist who had also been an ambassador during Kennedy. Obviously, this lady was very well um, connected. And she became the coordinator of this project. Initially, I wasn't involved in the early stages. Initially, they went to Don Berliner, which you probably know by name, who was an old member of NICAP, an aviation journalist from um, the Washington, D.C. area. And he wrote the original draft of this UFO briefing document, which was basically a very sober document, case histories, and it had like some general introduction and all that. But when they received the draft, they liked the format and the idea, the general format of the document, but they, it was obvious that the document needed to be updated, expanded, improved. And that's where I was brought in uh, by a lady who recently passed away, was a wonderful person, Sandy Wright. I believe that Chris might have met her too. She was, had a small foundation called the BSW Foundation. She's a very generous person. She helped a lot of people. She just passed away of cancer last December. 
And so I was brought in. I was working for the Japanese, um, for a Japanese project at the time, but if the timing was perfect. Just as the Japanese project was phasing out, I got hired by the Rockefeller people to work on this. And uh, we even had an office on Madison Avenue and everything. And I worked there. I improved the, the document. I ended up writing half of it, basically. They had, you see, a lot of cases from France and Belgium and Brazil, but the problem is Don, like most Americans, didn't know foreign languages, so he couldn't consult the, the first-hand sources. He had to filter it through the MUFON Journal or something. And so I said, we can publish about the Belgium wave, and we're, we're quoting the MUFON Journal. I mean, these people publishing, you know, 500-volume, you know, 500-page volumes about it, you know, and they, they and there are all kinds of military documents. So, sure, they said, go ahead, rewrite whatever you need. So we left some of the American cases, Socorro and the Washington, D.C., 52 flap, that Kenneth Arnold, you know, because obviously Berliner knew that very well. And I then concentrated on a lot of the foreign cases. And that's how I ended up uh, working on that project, uh, which was concluded in December of 95 and released to the public. And, and Well, not to the public. It was originally only to be sent to VIPs. Only a 1,000 copies were printed of the original report. Eventually, it came out in, as a paperback which was a, a deal arranged by Whitley Strieber, and that was in the year 2000. It came as a paperback by Dell. As you know, the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers, for listeners of the PowerCast, Audio is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the PowerCast. For this book or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast. Antonio Honeas joins us. Our co-host is Chris O'Brien. Unlike most other Paracast episodes, we're all in the same studio together. 
we're all just laughing at each other because we look a lot worse than we thought we'd look. Right, Chris? Speak for yourself, Chris. <laughs> I don't have a rejoinder for that one, Gene. You can ask a question of our esteemed guests. I, I, I will. Um, you were able to um, interact with Rockefeller, um, as I was, actually. How did you find him, I mean, in terms of how up to speed he was? No, as a matter of fact, I unfortunately, I never met uh, Lawrence Rockefeller personally. I, I wanted to, and I should have pushed to Bootsy, but then once the project was finished, the office right. was closed, and I lost my window of opportunity. So, so I, basically, there was no follow-up. They basically financed the project, uh, and that's it. There was sort of a follow-up, but different. What happened is, after our, our report was finished, it was sent to various um, important people, but unfortunately, and this was not uh, really Rockefeller's fault, it was it was given to FUFOR, which was um, a consortium of the three main UFO groups, MUFON, KUFOS, and the Fund for UFO Research, and they were supposed to distribute it, but there was no lobbying. I mean, if they spent so much resources in doing this report, they should have they should have been a much more aggressive distribution, but they didn't, uh, and so it kind of petered away. It had a couple of effects, ironically, not in this country. One was in France, because obviously Marie Galbraith knew everybody in France. Uh, she had been the ambassador's wife. She had very good connections. And a lot of copies were sent. We, in fact, we, got, we received material from the Japan, the French Space Agency, original material, because she knew these people, oh. which we used in the Trans and Provence uh, landing case uh, chapter. That led eventually in France to a similar report, which is was somewhat controversial because this was written by a lot of retired generals, and that was known as the Cometa Report. And we are quoted in the Cometa Report. They give all the accolades to Marie Galbraith. I'm barely mentioning, except in the footnotes, because they had to you know, have the citation of the book. All right, you're paid to write half the book, but to them, you're just a footnote. In Cometa, only in Cometa. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, because they knew her, and she was a social figure. Sure, so sure. They, even though she really didn't write much of it, she coordinated, She was like the editor of our report. She coordinated, and she had the last word on, on everything that went in. Did but you I, have any conclusions reached as to what UFOs are, or was it just a bunch of case histories? It was mostly a bunch of case histories. There was an introduction or an executive part of the report, which was written by Berliner, where basically he, he's of the ET, you know, inclination. So, but he was put in a, in a sort of a conservative way, you know, and then said, we're dealing for sure with aliens. Well, basically what he tried to prove is that uh, these things are real, in there's intelligence behind it, and there's some kind of um, physical evidence and that, you know, then the, the thing needs to be taken seriously. But there was not too much. It was sort of a one-on-one, you know. You want to know what's the evidence for UFOs. Like I said, it was supposed to be sent to VIPs, senators, people that don't have time to be going on the web looking for weird UFO cases. So we already did clean up the job for them and gave them, you know, here are the main cases. But there was no much follow-up, except that then Rockefeller went on and, and funded another project, uh, and this was the Sturrock Conference that took place in Pocantico Hills, where they brought a lot of scientists, both from Europe and the U.S., and uh, eventually uh, Peter Sturrock, who was an astrophysicist who was the head of the Society of Scientific Exploration at that time, came up with a pretty significant book called The UFO Enigma, I think, which is basically the proceedings of this conference. And Rockefeller was so enthusiastic about this, this particular project that he wrote the foreword, and is the only 
let's say, writing of Rockefeller on UFOs, publicly published. And that was a foreword to the Sturrock Report. In our case, no, he didn't write the foreword, but his name appears in the acknowledgement, so it was known that he funded the thing. Right. He signed the checks. He signed the checks. Yeah, question, Chris. What about? Uh, I mean, I remember the sort of uh, late '90s. There were some uh, rumblings that Stephen Greer had somehow kind of co-opted the process and, and did a rush release on it with some additional yeah. material. Yeah, that was kind of an unfortunate uh, episode. Uh, I was not personally involved in that, but what happened is Rockefeller had also funded Greer previously. I mean, or at least gave him some funds so he could he could do the original. Uh, interviews for the uh, disclosure project, basically, which entailed, you know, going to f traveling around the country or even the world and locating witnesses who were in the military who were willing to go and give their testimony on camera and all that. So Greer thought that he basically owned the Rockefeller, you know, franchise or whatever. And so when, but Berliner did not get along with Greer. This is the typical, you know, ufological infighting. This is the UFO yeah. field, ladies so and gentlemen. Then when Greer we're going to fight here after we have our first <laughs> hourly break. We're going to be screaming and yelling. I will not record that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so then when Greer got wind that there was this report coming out where he wasn't even mentioned, that he wasn't involved, he made a big fuss about it. That He even made a big fuss about the word briefing, which was ridiculous because the word briefing is a standard, you know, There's a trademark on yeah, the word briefing. Right. Yeah, let's get and, small. And, um, oh, and so he, I think, I believe at some point, um, he did basically photocopy the, the, the contents and uh, change the title page. And so then when Berliner got wind of that, I guess they sent him an attorney's letter or something like that. It got ugly. Yeah. Yeah, but I was not part of that, fortunately, although I wasn't happy with the way. I thought Greer's behavior was pretty bad because he had received money. You don't buy it out of the hand that feeds you, you know. So even though the second report he wasn't involved, he should have just been gracious that he got all that money from Rockefeller and move along, do his own thing, which eventually he did. Yeah, so he, he created a bit of a, of, a, of a problem there for a while, but I guess it's all, all history now. Now, the book that you did, the one that you worked on, was it given regular distribution? No, not the original report, only when it was published by, um, by Dell. Once it was published by Dell, then, of course, it was just a, another paperback, another UFO paperback. Uh, but by that time, even though this was part of a deal that uh, Strieber had, uh, where Strieber was presenting these books and writing the foreword, and they were a part of a series. They did another one on the Shock Harbor case in Canada. There was one by Hesseman on the Fatima case and uh, Roger Lear, the original edition of the Roger Lear book about the alien implants. But I don't think they got too much traction, though, unfortunately. Uh, it's still around, I suppose, if you if you ask for it. But uh, although that was published in 2000, I haven't seen it currently in, in, in bookstores. But it's, if you, you can buy it though on Amazon or whatever, or if you even order it from Dell, they probably still have some few copies left. But I don't think it was reprinted, though. So there's probably just a few copies left. But our, our the original edition was very elegant. Only a thousand copies were printed, had like a blue cover, they had color pictures of the Belgian photos and a few other things. Whereas the paperback, it was just your typical UFO paperback, small black and white pictures, and that was it. But the contents is identical. Nothing was changed in the content. Because the idea was that this was the Rockefeller Report, which you maybe heard about it, but you couldn't get it. Now you can get it. Even though at one time, Joe Firmich, remember Joe Firmich? 
the computer guy who was a financier also in the in yep. the UFO world. He put it on the web. At one time, that report was available on the web. Yeah. Maybe if you still it's search actually for it. still is it's, it's okay. still in one of these weird like uh, back then machines or one sure, of those sure. things. Yes, it is actually it is on the web. Like nothing, UFO yeah. mind. <laughs> nothing on the internet ever disappears for good or bad, right? Better or worse, it never disappears. It's always there. All right, now you were involved with this particular project, but they of course. You had other people like Whitley Strieber, and you had coverage of abductions and things like that. Yeah. What does Antonio Huneas think about abductions and abduction research? Because we've had a few. Oh, boy. Things. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you read the Paracast forums, it gets hot and heavy. Uh huh. And this is a place we have to take you to as you well, get accustomed uh, to Well, us. I was just recently, as a matter of fact, um, about two weeks ago. You were abducted? Two, two, no, no, no. But oh. two or three weeks ago, I was, I, hoping. I was in... Uh, Aura Rains. He wanted Aura Rains to um, abduct him. in California, in the LA area, and we had one of these uh, Roger Lear implant removals. And Strieber was there, too, and a bunch of people. So I had never seen that. I had seen it on TV, but it's different to see it live than on TV. I mean, live, of course, you're not in the operating room, but we had a, you know, a monitor. So so that was interesting, and that's a, yeah, that's a new case. Well, not new. The case happened in 1972, but uh, it's new to the UFO literature, in which has never been published yet. And uh, one of the guys actually came to the offices of Open Minds. Uh, his name is Ron Noel. And um, it's an interesting case. They, these kids were about 10 years old in uh, Orlando, Florida area. And uh, I guess they were hanging out um, outside, outdoors. And they um, remember... One of them at least remembers seeing this huge craft or object. And then they have a, a block. They have a total mental block. Then what's interesting is on the next day, they remember a helicopter landing in that area. And some soldiers came in. And, the, and they were friendly with the kids and gave them like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or whatever. But so... If that's true, it would seem like the military knew about the subject and they were checking the scene. In any case, one of the guys, many years went by, uh, 20 years, whatever, 30 years, he got an x-ray because he had, he was, uh, I guess, some kind of um, outdoor worker and he had gotten an injury in, in his hand. And on the, when the x-ray came, the doctor asked, what is this thing that you have on your forearm, that you, that you had surgery or something? And the guy said, no. So... Then on the same day, kind of a synchronicity, he happens to see one of these shows in the History Channel or Discovery or one of these, and he sees Roger Lear removing an implant. So it all kind of came together. So eventually he contacted Roger and so on. And this this whole process went and took, took about two, three years, and they finally removed the thing. Now, we haven't seen the analysis yet, but obviously he had something, and, and it was removed. Now that's so, a good question, too. We've talked to Dr. Lear a couple of times on the PowerCast, but we've never heard of any results from any of these implant removals. Do they indicate anything unusual? Well, people talk about all kinds of things. They talk about nanotechnology or that the thing behave weird. But you're right. I have not seen, like a, other than the just the chronicle of the, yeah, this guy with the operation was on such date and or the basic composition of the object or whatever. But final conclusions, no. I would say the evidence is ambiguous. 
But there's something there, though. I mean, it, it so happens that in some of these abduction cases, people do report that they have these these objects, and then the objects appeared. On uh, sometimes you cannot remove them when they are in the brain, like in Strieber's case, it's in the brain. Nobody's going to touch that. But if it's in the foot or the arm, that's one weird thing too about implants. They seem to be all over the body. So there's not a consistent pattern e there either, you know. It all looks the same, and they were all in the same part of the body, but they seem to, maybe they are done by different people, or they're or different aliens, or they're done for different purposes, or some of these cases were done at different times. Who knows? But it's, it's interesting. Now, the abduction, you were asking me earlier about abduction. Well, that's... You know, that's a pretty loaded um, issue there. Yeah, I definitely believe that there's something, uh, for sure, in many cases. Not in every case, of course. There are some cases that are dubious. There are some cases that probably have uh, psychological explanations. Yeah, there's, even though some cases are not are, are weak, there are cer certainly many cases that seem valid. Uh, I've met many abductees in my life. Picture this, you're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website, but it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free. 30-day trial. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Antonio Juneas joins us this week. Our co-host Chris O'Brien has a question. I do. Um, you brought up a very interesting point um, about uh, the implants. I just want to return to that uh, real quick. With all these implant removals uh, that have gone on, why do you think we have not seen even negative uh, results of analysis? I know Daryl Sims. Right. Daryl Sims walks around with a jewelry box. Yeah, yeah. Filled I, I, with, I, I uh, made him with his box. Yeah. With his with all these implants. Well, you know, why don't we get these things tested? Why don't we uh, find out if well, if some something have to been them? tested. As a matter of fact, in the current uh, in the first issue of of our new magazine, uh, Open Minds, uh, we do have an article, in uh, by Steve. Bell, uh, who is a material scientist from California who works with Roger, and he discusses a case there, the so-called John Smith case, because obviously this person doesn't want his name publicly, so there's some detail there. Steve did a much more technical analysis, which is very, very complex and boring, you know, I mean, charts and, you know, metals and whatever, so it's not really suitable for a popular magazine like ours, so what we did is we posted it in our website so and it's also listed at the end of the article if you want to read if you are an engineer or a scientist and you can understand this terminology oh, good to know. Yeah. yeah then you can go to the website and download and it's like a 30 page PDF with the pictures and everything so some analysis have been made but as you know Gene it's like everything if you want to do really top-notch analysis uh, you need funding so often for the 
the private ufologists or the people that run these support groups or whatever, they don't have the funding. You have to use the, like electron microscopes and scan the object and see this composition. You need to hire professional scientists. So hopefully this will happen, but um, it's, it, it, this is the kind of area where uh, people like Bigelow, you know, could 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 sponsor. But uh, I guess he's busy putting hotels in space now. Well, that's not uh, like a good idea. In fact, that said, we need Bigelow to save the space program. It is really going off the cliff. Mm -hmm. Okay, but looking at this thing, all right, you have the analysis. Is there anything there that? seems to be unusual, weird. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you the details right now because it also it varies, you know, from case to case. But uh, I understand that in uh, in some cases, uh, according to Roger anyway, but you've interviewed Roger, yeah, there were some, uh, I believe some of these uh, pieces that were supposed to have behaved strangely or they ch or there were changes. Oh, you got the report, yeah. You, 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 I have yeah. a report right now. I'm looking at it as we talk. But if you go to openminds.tv, you'll be able to download it, ladies and right. gentlemen. I'm and sure. then it has all the scientific. Now, that's for only one implant. So if you, you probably estimate that you have, I would say, probably about 30 or so of this implant. I know Roger himself has worked on 15 cases, but other people have worked on other. I worked on one of the first cases, which was the Richard Price case. You might remember that, Gene. Well, I might look at the conclusion then, okay? And there is one paragraph here where this is where he reaches that decision. Mm -hmm. The manufacturer of a device comparable to this one is probably beyond the technology of known earthly commercial processes at the present time. It is most likely, therefore, that the device was manufactured by an alien civilization. There you go. Okay, so that's his conclusion, which... All right, at least <laughs> there, there's no equivocation there. He's making a decision. Certainly, we have to see whether that particular conclusion stands right. up. In the story of the abduction itself, which is quite interesting, it's in, of course, it's in our magazine. And there's some explanation of the object in our magazine, but like I said, as you could tell there, it gets very, very technical. It's, it's a field that needs, of course, more, more research. But, um, I, I mean, when you come to think of it in 20 years ago, there was no implants. There were just talk of implants. Remember this is they, kind of strange the way this thing has migrated. And the thing I wonder about, which is why I tend to be skeptical about this. Now, we don't know. But he says this is alien. I don't know. This has to be confirmed by other people. All right. The thing I worry about the implants is... To what purpose? Is this something like a tracking device? Well, that would be the more obvious explanation, not necessarily the correct one, because if you're dealing with aliens, who knows what, how, what's their way of doing things. But consider that we do the same to animals, right, to endangered species. Scientists go and shoot them mm -hmm. with a tranquilizer and put the implant them with a, with a chip, basically, that so they can, the scientists can monitor, you know, the migration patterns of animals and so on. I mean, we do it. This is an RF. ID device of some right. sort. Okay, so, so it's sending signals maybe mm -hmm. to them, wherever they are. Wherever they are. Wherever they are, it's sending signals to them. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, sure. if, you are, if, you are, if you have some kind of program for abducting people, which seems to be, uh, at least as a hypothesis presented by Hopkins and all these people, then it makes sense. Initially, when the abduction phenomena first started, and you probably, because you go all the way back, you remember that even Heineken and people like that used to Before say that you were, you were likely to only see a UFO once. 
So it was everything was supposed to be random. Maybe you were abducted because you happened to be on the wrong place at the wrong time and the aliens got you or something. But actually, it makes more sense to follow up the subject. That's the way we do things if we're doing any kind of scientific project, you know. We, we don't just go down random and then yeah. go random elsewhere. I mean, maybe the initial is random, but then once we, once we got the, our target, then you keep on that target. So I think that, that makes sense. There are too many abductions, too many situations of missing time. It's too much. It's like you see all these cases where E.T. gets out of the spaceship like the movie E.T. Right. And he takes the soil samples. After the first soil sample, why? Yeah. Well, right. And these implants, they don't need to be the size of a, you know, the size of a little chip of uh, bone or wood or something. They, they could, even with our technology, they could have something nano size yeah. that you would never be able to spot. Well, actually, the one that was taken from this guy is, is very small. Huh? Yeah. It's very small. So right. I but think. if you look at the chip inside my eye, Phone. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, well, what? They're using a what, 32 or 48 nanometer process to build right. that ship, for heaven's sake. And that's got thousands, maybe millions of transistors in yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know, Jim. I mean, uh, the abduction phenomena is, is a weird one. Um, I'm not a theory person, personally, because I, I saw this at the beginning of my involvement with UFOs that, that people, when people get very attached to their theory, first got in, involved in ufology, I, I saw that when you become very attached to a theory, whatever your theory may be, you know, extraterrestrial or interdimensional or paranormal phenomena, whatever, then you're going to start naturally, oh, first of all, you're going to start fighting with other people who have different theories, and this happens all the time. And then second, you're going to start filtering also the data, even subconsciously, even if you try to be objective. But if you believe very strong that this is the scenario, then you're going to naturally be filtering the data to suit your theory. I saw this happening, you know, with different people way, way back. So well, this is one of the issues we're having with abductions, where certain abduction yeah. researchers are dealing with hybrids. You know, they're looking for hybrids. We're creating right. hybrids, and now, of course, maybe it looks more authentic because we now know that humans can mate with Neanderthals. That's how you see those cavemen on the Geico commercials, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, right. That's where they come from. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? And, uh, well, the other theory that now seems to be very popular, which wasn't at all popular when I became involved, and, you know, I used to go to the... But Hopkins, no, I'm not an abductee, but Hopkins always had uh, guests, you know, back then in the 80s. And that was a fascinating period to see a lot of the support group and the different researchers that would come to Bud's house and all that. And at that time, nobody talked about this. But now, it seems more and more people talking about it, which is the my labs, you know, the military and the mind control and all that. But I don't... I well, according don't. to Hopkins and Jacobs, millions of people have been and are being abducted, which it, to me is just... It, doesn't make one it doesn't make sense at all I, I, yeah well partly they based it on the roper poll remember which was financed right. by bigelow but that was just a, a an assessment based on this questionnaire so who knows depends it, on the questions depends on the sampling it's not so yeah, easy it's not sure. so easy but uh, one thing about abductions they are they are reported everywhere though it's not a, at all exclusively an american phenomenon in, in fact some of the more early famous abductions weren't even in the united states you know villas boss yeah Vila's yeah, boss, yeah the yeah. one in brazil that is 1957, which is four years before the Betty Hill case. The only thing is that Villas-Boas wasn't publicized. 
because of its sexual content, which was too much for that era. So, it, it, but certainly it's well documented that the case was was investigated at that time. And you have a lot of uh, interesting abduction cases in South America, uh, among other places. And but they're in Japan and Europe, maybe not in the same mass numbers on the, as in the U.S., but they certainly are reported. Well, that's the problem with cases from Latin America. And I went over this with Scott Corrales a couple of times. He's been on the show. And that is that there seems to be a prejudice, especially against Latin America. It may be kind of an Hispanic thing or a prejudice where you think, oh, they were just drinking and they saw UFOs uh -huh. and like that. But it seems that the kind of cases we get from South America tend to be more extreme, more elaborate. And the stuff that we see here, is it because of the way that people express what happened to them? Or is it the core data that's no, different? Well, uh, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, in general, in South America, or would I say Latin America, because that would include Mexico now, the culture is more open towards the concept of UFOs. So UFOs and aliens are actually less controversial. Uh, if you have a big case in any South American capital or big city, it's going to be, it's on yeah. the big news. It's on the seven o'clock news. I mean, it's, it doesn't have the stigma that a lot of it has here. That's There's no a, wink. No. Say, although, oh, the lunatics are out again. Although tonight. the scientific community, on the other hand, is pretty bad. I would say there are more scientists, professional scientists involved in the United States than in Latin America. It's funny that when it comes to the scientific community, they kind of overreact and they get like even worse than the American scientists. But some cases, and now we're going to go into this uh, series of incidents that took place in Brazil in the Amazon, which Jacques Vallée and Bob Pratt, among others, wrote about it, and so did I in, in articles in UFO Universe in the past and in fate, uh, where I was also columnist, some extreme cases do happen, but not everywhere in Latin America, in Brazil, and not everywhere in Brazil, in certain areas of Brazil, because I asked, I was in Brazil, my brother used to be married to a Brazilian woman, so in the 80s, I went there a couple of times, and I spent some time, and I gave lectures, and I met many people. That's when the, the story about these four dead hunters and the Colaris Island case, at that time, those the things were, were new. So I asked, what's going on in Brazil? And of course, Brazil is huge, you know. Brazil is larger than continental USA minus Alaska. That's how big it is. It's almost half of South America. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f a t e m a g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits this is the paracast you never know what's going to happen next we're talking to antonio Honeas, longtime ufo investigator chris o'brien's our co-host we're going to Brazil. Tell me about the case. Right. And so what, what Irene Granchi, who's one of the dean, uh, one of the pioneers of ufology in Brazil, she told me, yes, but it's not all over Brazil. It's only in certain areas of Brazil where these 
violent cases happen, these negative cases happen. And Brazil seems to have, I would say, almost 80% of the, I'm just estimating it, of the um, injury cases. You know, these are the UFO bombers. And these are the ones that are, that are the least likely to be a hoax because who's going to injure yourself, you know, to say, hey, you know, I saw aliens and I Okay, the injury foot. cases. Give me a couple of examples of injury cases where people were hurt. Anybody died, by the way? Yes, were killed. There, yeah. there were four hunters that died in the states of Maranhão. In, Chupas. In, yeah, the Chupas. Uh, and, uh, and there were cases, actually, where there were a few cases where people died. And in fact, Irene Granchi had a letter, which I transcribed, I remember. So I have it somewhere in my notes where she had been contacted by a, a member of the attorney general's office in one of these states because she was an expert on UFOs, which means that they were looking at the UFO angle, you know, from a, from a judicial uh, investigation. Yes, people were being hit by beams. Literally, and uh, they were injured, and in a few cases, they they passed away. These were very strange cases. There was a panic in the area eventually because this thing was going on on a daily basis, practically, and people started leaving this this particular area. Valet writes about this in confrontations. Confrontations, yeah. And uh, eventually, the Air Force had to move in, and they set up like a camp with tents and stuff to actually to even help the people they were giving first aid to some of the victims and to calm to calm the, the population yeah and supposedly they got some incredible uh, film footage too. correct i haven't seen the film footage now the report was mythical for many years uh, valet mentioned it and said there was supposed to be a 500 page report but nobody had seen it people had heard about it but now that report is has been released so and not maybe not all of it, but the bulk of it. You know, Javier, the famous Brazilian ufologist, he's he's been on the show. Okay, so AJ's been on the show. You know, and that's another thing I wanted to ask you about here. Was there an autopsy of the people who were killed by this beam? Well, there is a different case in a different part of Brazil uh, near a dam uh, where this this mutilated body was found. This was published by Javier too, but that has nothing to do with the chupas. Though that is a completely different case. And according to some uh, interpretation of the of the autopsy, uh, some of the effects of this unfortunate guy seem similar to the cattle mutilations. That's a good question. I, I have not seen autopsy reports uh, of the cases in northern Brazil, but I, I would imagine that there are some. I think uh, I think Valet mentions that there was a doctor who was examining yes. people. Well, the a, doctor was actually interviewed. Yeah. Uh, recently, the History Channel did a, a joint collaboration with the Brazilian network. And uh, I think it was part of the what was called the UFO files here, and uh, they they did a good a good job on that on yeah, that flap. Yes, they went there and they interviewed the doctor, who at that time was a young doctor, probably doing her internship or something. But now, of course, she's uh, much older. This happened in '77 and '78, the height of this flap. But there were incidents still going on in the '80s. So now the thing I wanted to ask here: this situation involving those who were struck by a ray gun. Let's put it on the table here. Anywhere else in the world do we have cases like this? We do, but not by any in much smaller numbers than in Brazil. And Brazil seems to be the gets the bulk of those. I re, uh, I remember there's a case in Finland with um some skiers who got hit by a beam. And the and doctor X yeah. case in France. Right. And well, uh, the Canadian uh, one too. Well, uh, yeah, Michalak is in our briefing document. Yeah. But that was not a beam. There are cases where the witness was was injured 
by the field of energy of the object. So maybe those are not aggressive. You know, it's like if, if, if you see an electrified fence and you're a cow and you cannot read and it says danger, do not touch, and you went in touch and you got electrocuted, it's not the fault of the owner of the thing, right? You, you like cash land. Right. So also the Rendlesham case when some of the officers yeah, fascinating case. came a little too close to the craft. They also suffered adverse oh, effects. Oh, yeah. There yes. are many. There are hundreds of cases. John Schussler, the former head of MUFON, who used to be an aerospace engineer with McDonnell Douglas and worked on the Johnson Space Center, a credible guy, aerospace engineer, he was specialized in this area. And he uh, published a whole catalog of injury cases, just injury cases. What I'm saying is the injury cases, you have to divide in at least two categories. The ones that are accidental. In other words, the person got too close to the UFO and he got injured. Those are the bulk. And a few, maybe 5%, 6% of cases where, and Greer's not going to like this, where the UFO was not at all a good guy. I mean, it was it was literally uh, aggressive. It was, it was attacking people. You know what? When it comes to what Greer thinks, frankly, my dear, I don't give a no, damn. No, neither do I. No. But I was just No, thinking. but come on, Gene. They're all benevolent space brothers. <laughs> uh, it, well, it must have been some like weird accident that they zapped these poor hunters. Well, who they actually hunted down. Yeah, these guys were hunters. in the, tre- the You know, it's like Dick trees. Cheney where he was hunting and he oh, shot one of his friends. Friend? Yeah. <laughs> shot his best friend. <laughs> and, and that's it. So basically, when... This happened back in Brazil. Was Dick Cheney there? <laughs> now we're getting into a good hypothesis. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good one. Well, one of my favorite ones of Greer's when he says that uh, when he blames the abductions, the whole abduction yeah, phenomenon on the, on the secret government yep. to besmirch the name of the aliens, to give them a bad name. Yep. That's a great conspiracy theory. I mean, and they also use ray guns, of course. Yeah. They send William Shatner with a ray gun, okay? Well, well this is like some sort of particle beam. Yeah, there are cases actually in Brazil yeah. where people really, really did get hit by a beam. There is another case in Brazil in the 60s, and this is fairly well known for those who have been in the field for a long time. I forgot the name of it right now. It was in a farm. Chris probably remembers it, and where the UFO landed, classical disc, and three guys came out, and um, the, the farmer, uh, I don't think it was the owner, but it was whatever, a guy working there, uh, grabbed the rifle. So in this case, the aliens were actually self-defense. It was a human that shot first. Mm-hmm. And then the aliens shot a beam at the guy and hit him. And he was dead within three days. There was a book out a few years back, Shoot Him Down, where they actually talk about the U.S. government well, trying to shoot down a UFO. Shoot him down. It's the cover of our, our first issue of Open Minds magazine. Okay. And this is what we have is an interview with Milton Torres. Yeah, grab your stinger. Um, who is um, an Air Force pilot, a retired Air Force pilot. And he said, yes, they did have those instructions at one time. George Knapp also says the same in Russia that when he interviewed uh, Colonel Sokolov, who was the guy, the head of the Ministry of Defense Secret Commission on UFOs in the 80s under the Soviet Union. And he said the Russians also had this, this order, but so many of these incidents ended so badly. In some cases, the jet, you know, crashed or ba- barely escaped with his life. That the new orders were put out. He said, "If you see a UFO, get the hell out of there! Don't <laughs> get the hell out of Dodge." 
<laughs> I had a case in uh, 67 where two carloads of uh, college students were headed uh, north up uh, Highway 17 in the San Luis Valley, and an object came down and landed uh, fairly close to the highway. You know, kids being kids, uh, one of these guys, uh, who's actually a student at uh, Colorado uh, State, he got out and approached it, and he was hit and paralyzed and knocked yeah. unconscious with a beam almost like he was getting too close and it zapped him and then took off. Right. I, there was a similar case and this is a wonderful case. Wonderful in the sense that it's so well documented. It's known as, and I wrote it in the Fate column when I had the, when I was the UFO columnist for Fate magazine for about 10 years. It was one of my first articles. It's known as the Pirasununga Close Encounter. It happened in this small city called Pirasununga in Sao Paulo State in 1969. And a, a UFO landed, classical flying saucer, dome shape with tripod, the whole thing. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. According to Air Force documents, it was seen by about 500 people. But there was one fruit vendor who was, his name was Tiago Machado, and he was about a 19-year-old. He must have been a very hyper guy, and I guess he wasn't afraid. And he ran towards the object. And the, 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 the aliens, or whatever the occupants, had, had levitated out of the object, and they shot him with a beam but only on the thigh. They only burned him slightly, but enough to knock him down. And then the UFO took off. I believe it was a Brazilian Air Force officer that speculated that actually they might have saved his life because if he had gotten closer, then he could have gotten affected by the field. And in this case, obviously, they didn't want to. He only had like a third-degree burn, but he was taken to the hospital, and, and there's Brazilian Air Force documents about this whole incident. Is there a medical analysis as to the injuries, the nature of the injuries when these people people are shot by the UFOs. Similar to microwave or radiation, radiation uh, uh, sickness. In our briefing document, we go into great detail on the Michelac case, which is a famous Canadian case when this uh, minor uh, prospecting guy came very close to the UFO. He wasn't shot. He just was touched, touched it. And, and this thing was humming. So it wasn't like, I think what happens is if it's a UFO lands and, and it say, turns off his engine or something, then you don't get injured. But if the thing is really like ready to take off or something, it's obviously emitting some kind of field. And this guy was very sick and uh, he ended up in the hospital. Eventually, fortunately, he, he recovered. But there's a whole dossier by the um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They investigated the case. So, yeah, there, there are some cases where the guy got beamed, you know, there was a beam that hit him. In other cases, it's just that he came too close and he got hit by the field. But, uh. All right, there's some kind of field. Yeah. Electromagnetic field, something generated by the craft, whatever it is. You get too close, you are subjected to its effects. Correct. Okay. Remember that also this happens not just to, to physiologically, but also to machines, right? Cars stall, radios malfunction, you know. So again, there, there's some kind of field, an electromagnetic field. It even used to be called, remember the electromagnetic effect in the old literature, NICAP and all that way. Right, and you wonder if that causes mental effects too. If some of the encounters that people have are the result of some kind of electromagnetic Could effect. Could be. Couldn't, you know, possibly provoke some sort of hallucinatory event uh, in a person's mind. Yeah. There's, there's this guy, the scientist Persinger. Yeah. Probably Chris knows about him, uh, or you probably heard of him. He was a, he's a prominent scientist in Canada. And he's done, uh, he, he, he takes people inside, like, uh, and puts them inside a machine, and then he excites certain parts of the brain. 
And then people have Virgin Mary apparitions and alien experiences and they encounter Bigfoot or whatever. And so it's being recreated in, in, in a laboratory by just hitting certain parts of the brain. So then you sometimes wonder here, some people suggest maybe governments are doing some kind of mind control experimentation. So if you subject people to electromagnetic radiation, you can make them think that anything happened to them at all, completely. It could be an abduction, it could be a UFO, it could be the Virgin Mary, no matter what. Of course, for Fatima, we didn't have right. electromagnetic radiation, no, yeah. or did we? Yeah, and we even have UFO cases going back in the past, so not everything can be explained uh, you know, by, by our technology, but there are situations where it overlaps, yeah. I mean, the fact that people are having these experiences, but maybe also they can be simulated, just makes it more complicated to yeah. try to Muddies sort it out. the old investigative waters. And, uh, Assuming, by the way, that those implants are not alien technology, but earthly technology, that would explain what's going on there. Our governments are engaged in mind control experiments. Well, that that's many people believe that, but you also have to. Whenever you bring the government or a conspiracy, you also have to look at the um, purpose. What is the purpose, and also the logistics? You know, the capabilities. For instance, one of the cases I, I wrote in the in in the website, or well, originally I had written also in Fate, but uh, it's now in the Open Minds website, is the Wolski abduction. It's a fascinating case. Happened in Poland in uh, 1978. This was an old um, farmer. It was about 71 years old at the time. He knew nothing. What's beautiful about this case was the total lack of knowledge of the guy. On It was an uncontaminated case. It's, we're never going to have another case like that now with the Internet and all that. Because he never even re mentioned them as aliens or extraterrestrials. He called them like weird foreigners. Yeah, and everything <laughs> was even the description of the craft is like low tech. But However, the guy gets through a medical examination and the whole steps are the same. Now, what are you going to tell me that the CIA or whatever was going into the Warsaw Pact countries at the height of the Cold War, risking, you know, World War Three to abduct people and create a fake alien abduction? That doesn't, yeah. for what no, purpose? It doesn't wash, no. doesn't wash. You have cases in China. Yeah, yeah, I see you're in the site. If you press my name, then it will list all the articles, and then you can get, you can see this uh, Wolski one. Ladies and gentlemen, it's openminds.tv, okay? There's an openminds.com, totally different company. Yeah, yeah. Openminds.tv, and if you go into the list of staff members, you can then check the various articles that he has written for this publication. Then tell our listeners, since we mentioned it, and since you are an editor of Open Minds, how does one get a copy? Well, of course, you can get it through through the web by going to openminds.tv very simple then you press magazine and you can subscribe or even easier you go to any Barnes and Nobles or Borders and uh, you buy there. So you, you got good, good distribution for it then? Yeah, we have national distribution, at least with those two chains. Right. And it's in a few, you know, metaphysical bookstores and places like that, but uh, those are selected. Hopefully, eventually, we'll be in uh, airport bookstores and things like that. But right now, any Barnes and & Nobles and Borders will have it. And our magazine is bi-monthly, so we've just published the first issue. And in, on June 1st, the second issue hits. And then this, of course, is only one of the things we do. Uh, we have a very comprehensive website. We have a radio show, which is done by Alejandro Rojas. 
and we also working on TV productions, but that's more along the way, you know. I mean, we are we are in the early stages of of documenting cases and interviewing people, but we you can see in our website short video clips. Yeah, and it looks uh, it looks yeah. very impressive. The production quality is really yeah. well, we, really top show. Yeah, we have Tom Ruffin who works on that, who used to work for Paramount, so he's he's definitely a professional. So, so someone put money behind this operation. Yes, yeah, it's very exciting. To it, basically what we are, we're very different from. Bigelow. We are a UFO media company. This has, doesn't exist. We're the first one. We are, have every aspect of media. We have the web, the magazine, the radio, and the TV eventually. We also have the conference, you know, the International UFO Congress that used to be in Laughlin, Nevada. That was bought by us, and now it's going to be moved to the Phoenix area in uh, in Fort McDowell beginning in next February. So we're bringing Hopefully the, the quality of uh, some improve. of the speakers is going to improve. It, believe me, it will improve. All right. It will improve. Well, certainly yeah. anything that can bring up the dialogue. And without comparing you to a certain other newsstand UFO magazine, what do you think <laughs> it bring to the field? Well, it, for one thing, a professional look, which was lacking in all that. Even when we were going back to the pulp publications, yes, they were a newsstand, but they were a pulp. They had no, you know, they, they didn't have a decent art department or anything. Ours looks very professionally made. Also, we are trying to be a little bit more serious, you know, not filter a little bit the material. Unlike the other UFO magazine there, we don't have columnists. It's all like feature stories. We do have, of course, a news section and a review section and, you know, those kinds of features. We don't have all these endless, you know, uh, freebies where people get to vent, you know, their opinions and da da da. Because what we're trying to do is not go to the, your, 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 you know, few thousand people who want to follow you. Of course, they're our natural market. We want to go to the public out there, to the big public. That's our goal. So, you don't want to be just in the UFO field. I mean, we want to increase the audience. Yeah. So for that, you have to produce a good-looking uh, publication and a serious one. We have Antonio Huneas. Our co-host is Christopher O'Brien. We'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the wrong source to. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return with Antonio Juneas. Our co-host is Christopher O'Brien. And Antonio, in addition to all the many thousands of other things he's done, also has made an extensive study of UFOs in historical times. And going back to that particular subject, we haven't explored that too much on the Paracast. And I think we've only had one or two guests where we go really far back. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that we maybe have heard about in Chariots of the Gods, Von Daniken, what does that look like to you? Is that a possibility that there were ancient astronauts? Yeah, I think so. In fact, the last um, articles I did for our website, the uh, openminds.tv, I just posted it. I, it was a two-part series on uh, UFO incidents in ancient China. The first article uh, dealt more like with the legendary uh, parts of legendary China, but then it moved into more not-so-ancient times. We had a case there by a 
medieval poet, a medieval poet and philosopher, uh, Liu Yin, who had a, a remarkable UFO sighting. And then on the second part, I deal specifically with cases during the Ming Dynasty which uh, ruled China between the 1300s and the 1600s. So we're dealing, uh, you know, relatively more recent historical times, but definitely historical times. And in fact, we have a case there, which is interesting, because in the first hour we were talking about cases where of injury. In this particular incident is about a UFO, or they don't call it, of course, a UFO, a, a ship that was floating over the clouds, which landed. And it paralyzed the witnesses, and then the guy that got the closer died for unexplained reasons within several days. And this is in a report written in the in the 1500s. The, or this case, I believe, happened in 1523 or something like that. And the author lived in the 17th century. Of course, historical cases are uh, there's a plus and a con. The plus is that they're not tainted sociologically by any of the modern mythology of aliens and science fiction and all that, right? And also they come from a period where there was no aviation, except uh, at most uh, balloons or something, and balloons only in the 18th century. So you can still talk about maybe natural phenomena or other explanations, but certainly any artificial machine gets ruled out automatically because there were none right in the Middle Ages or whatever. But on the other hand, the, the, the con is like, I mean, you can investigate by reading documents and things like that, but obviously the people are long dead, so there's no way of uh, of interviewing witnesses and things like that. You just you only have what you have, which is usually written accounts, or in some cases you also have paintings and there or miniatures or whatever. And there are, as you've probably seen them, you know, there's uh, quite a number of uh, mostly from the Renaissance, a few from medieval periods. In fact, in the briefing document, we had the most famous one, which is the the Madonna with uh, baby Jesus and baby St. John, which is at the Palacio Vecchio in Florence, which I actually saw it with my own eyes, finally. I have already written about that, that case. And it's a remarkable, where you see, I'm sure you've seen it, Gene, where you see the, the, the person looking at the UFO, and if the person is like this, you know, with his hand, and the dog, there is a dog, and the dog is also looking at the UFO. And this thing really looks like a UFO. And this painting is from the late... 1400s and it's a, certainly a, a real a real painting i mean there's there's no dispute about none of these paintings you can interpret them there's the other one which is um, by a painter called Salim Beni which is at a church in um, somewhere in Italy i forgot right now where when you i'm sure you've seen it too where the object looks like a sputnik it's a, it's a perfect metallic yeah. ball with spikes Right. And it's right next to the Holy Trinity. You see God the Father, Jesus, and, um, and the Holy Spirit as a bird. But clearly this is not the Holy Spirit because you see the bird. And then you see this, and both Jesus and, and God Father are holding one of the spikes of this Sputnik-type object. So what is that? So yes, there is, there's definitely an argument that this is not a new phenomenon. Again, you see it in different cultures. Of course, How far back can we go? Biblical times? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, okay. Of course, yeah. the biblical, right. uh, you know, the Ezekiel's uh, vision, very famous, where he describes a wheel within a wheel and so on. There's um, Elijah, who, according to the Bible, was taken into by God into a chariot, and off he went into the skies and was never seen again. 
and uh, saw biblical times. There's of course, of course, the books by Zachariah Sitchin about the Sumerian mythology. That's as as, as old as it gets, you know, in terms of of cultures, civilizations. So, well, in the previous week's show, we have Jim Mosley. We were talking about the book about contactees by Nicholas Redfern. But the first part of George Adamski's book, Flying Saucers Have Landed, his first book where he talks about meeting the Venusians in the desert, the first part was written by Desmond Leslie. Correctly. And it was about ancient yes. astronauts. Yeah, I met Desmond Leslie. I met him once at, a, at one of the symposiums in the Republic of San Marino in Italy. And you're right. The first part had nothing to do with Adamski. And he dealt, among other things, and he was probably one of the first, he dealt with the Vimanas. And the Vimanas are these um, flying machines, basically, flying cars. I think that's the way you, if you translate them exactly, it means flying car. They are in Indian mythology. If you read the Mahabharata or the Ramayana, you know, the great epics of ancient India. Yeah, they even give instructions uh, on how to build them. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, of course, uh, Childress, you know, repr yeah. reprinted this famous book called the Vimanika Shastra. What was this? You know, in the article I did about China, too, there are reports about the first, the yellow emperor, the first Chinese emperor, there were people who were doing chariots, uh, supposedly. I mean, of course, when you go deep into mythology, it, it's, you know, it's hard to, where you draw the line, right? Where's mythology? Where's if things happen, really? But even if things didn't happen, it's like our science fiction. The ideas still came from somewhere, right? Even if it's a fictional account, it's, yeah, inspired, it's it? inspired by yeah. something. Of course, we also have the movie Stargate, where they go to the Stargate to another galaxy. Right. But... The theory being that in ancient times, these evil beings yeah. from other planets came here and enslaved us. It, yeah. Well, the, 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 the original Stargate, which was a movie, then became the TV series. Sure. You know, they had the movie uh, with James Spader and right. Kurt Russell. Yeah. And then you had the TV version yeah. with Richard D. Which Anderson, is still going which is on Stargate SG-1, yeah. and now it's Stargate Atlantis. Yeah, Atlantis mythology. But I think that on, mostly the, the, the inspiration for the original movie, not the Stargate, Stargate idea, because that's never in Sitchin, but the idea of the ancient gods coming and seeding mankind, they took that from Sitchin, basically. There is even in the beginning of the movie, the old movie, the one with Spader, where he's an archaeologist, and he's talking about an inscription in the in the Khufu's pyramid. That's straight from Sitchin's book. They just didn't give him credit. He so. didn't sue, did he? <laughs> you know, in Hollywood, everybody sues. But the Stargate concept, is there any historical reference for that? Not that I'm aware. Of course, you do have like teleportation type things, yes, but not with a not with a gate, you know, where someone goes through a device. Basically, there are stories where the in folklore in the Irish Celtic folklore right, and things a, like that, yeah. very abduction-like phenomena. And this was pointed out by Jacques Vallée in Passport to Magonia, where a lot of the similarities. Then people get taken into a, inside a cave and they're buried treasure or whatever, and but they never walk there. They saw the, the, the supernatural being or the, or the wizard or whoever, and boom, next thing, they are inside uh, another situation. So this is similar. Uh, you have the time dilation uh, element, too, which is very intriguing. Right. Yes. There is a time dilation even even in the Quran. You know, there's a famous night journey of, Moham of the Prophet Muhammad. It's a famous chapter in the Quran where he basically uh, gets taken. Um, the angel um, Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel comes to him. 
which is sort of his uh, intermediary, you know, for how the Quran was revealed, supposedly. And then he goes into a, a flying creature, which the Quran calls the Burak. And the Burak is basically some kind of horse, but that flies. And, but the, it doesn't have the face of a horse. And they're very beautiful representations of this in medieval Islamic miniatures. And basically, Muhammad gets taken to heaven, where he gets, they give him a tour of heaven. Then he gets returned, and this presumably took hours, because, you know, he, they take him to different places, and they show him different stuff. Then he gets back to his house, where the bed was still warm. It's a wonderful little detail. So, again, that's time dilation. The guy might have, which we encounter in some UFO cases, where the guy might have experienced hours. We started our show, right, with the chilling case. Days, maybe. And then, in, in our time, space-time continuum, only like nothing happened. And then you have the opposite too, the yeah. Rip Van Winkle where he goes to sleep and thinks he just sleeps for a little while and 20 years have gone by. Yeah. Is he any older after 20 years? No. No. Okay. He is not. That's not a bad thing to do, I think. You know, just disappear <laughs> for 20 years <laughs> yeah. if you and you wake out. up and maybe at that point in time we've invented warp drive. Well, that's what happened in Riven Winkle. He's, he, he goes to sleep when you're still doing the British, and then when he wakes up, and remember, he right, walks yeah, into a bar and he says, where's the painting of George III? Because he, he sees a George there, but it's George Washington. So they almost lynch him, of course, because they, you know, <laughs> Remember, it was, it was short, swarthy uh, dwarf-type beings yes. that were doing bully ninepins. And Riven Winkle, you know, I mean, that's in the Hudson Valley, where we've had a lot of weird stuff. That is a science yeah. fiction story. Yeah. We don't think of it that way. No, but it, it's 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 a great story. Yep. I mean, he had some some got a clever idea. Somewhere. Hey, neighbors! Would you like to see the Powercast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the Powercast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. You've entered another dimension. You've entered We have co-host Christopher O'Brien with Antonio Honeas. He's an editor of Open Minds Magazine, new publication. If you go to openminds.tv, you learn more. Now, I'm thinking here also, Chariots of the Gods, the section in Flying Saucers of Landed, the stuff written by the late Yona Fortner. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Extraterrestrialism him. Yeah. as an historical doctrine. Talking about... The gods or right. God of yeah. the Bible was really E.T. Of course, the religions don't want to hear that. But what sort of evidence do we see for it? Well, uh, like I mentioned before, we don't see, unfortunately, we have not discovered, you know, the physical remains of a Vimana or a flying chariot. 
And if it's hard enough to get modern flying saucers, you know, that supposedly crash and they get retrieved, imagine something that, that landed or crashed, you know, 5,000 years ago. So that we are unlikely to get. But uh, you have to basically study the text and in some cases the iconography, the illustrations. And there's no question that there is a sky lore, that there are, there are references to the heavens and people that live in the heavens who are superior to us who come and do what they want pretty much with humans and sometimes some humans get are privileged and they get taken to see a tour of the of the heavens so this go, is worldwide too yeah, not yeah absolutely absolutely culture, this yeah. is this is consistent with just about even like uh, anthropologists who done like uh, obscure, more obscure tribes. Well, one of the more fascinating uh, accounts is uh, the Serious Mystery. Robert Temple, remember, wrote that book called The Serious Mystery? The Dogon. The Dogon tribe in Mali. And they had an entire lore about the, not only, and they even had uh, astronomical information about Mali, who hadn't even been confirmed by astronomy until like that, that uh, is a twin star system. That was not known until the late 19th century. And supposedly some of this lore goes centuries back. So there's, you know, if you even think of it, uh, Carl Sagan, who's not a particularly friend of UFOs, but he wrote a famous book with uh, the Russian astrophysicist Shlikovsky called, uh, I think, Intelligent Life in the Universe, published in the 1960s. And in this book, he has one chapter about where we contacted in ancient times. And he basically, you know, debunks a lot of them. But then he sets a, a series of parameters of what would have happened if the case was real. And then he analyzes the, the, the mythology or the legends about an amphibious being in Sumerian mythology called Oannes. Mm-hmm. And he references various texts and all that and what Oannes did. And he landed in the, in the Gulf there and gave them civilization and writing, whatever. And Sagan and Shlikovsky then basically conclude in that chapter that this case is probably real. This is Carl Sagan. It's not something he repeated very often after that, but if you read the actual chapter, it's there. Well, of course, the Richard Shaver legend has it that many centuries Mm -hmm. ago, we have this advanced race who came from the stars, who landed here, and because of various conditions on Earth, they left except for a subset of their race, the abandoned Deros, who became the Deros and Tiros, who lived in the caverns. But again, it's the same legend that we had advanced civilization, and maybe that's part of it too. Could there have been an advanced civilization that flourished on Earth thousands of years ago, and because of some kind of cataclysm, the civilization was destroyed. We only hear about it in legend. Right, Atlantis and all that. Sure. Very, it's very possible. Uh, the other one that, and this was fiction, but he, but he created a, 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 his own mythology and it was very strong stuff. Lovecraft, right? H.P. Lovecraft. And he, remember, he talked about the ancient ones. And the ancient ones, the cult of Cthulhu and all this, Cthulhu, the yeah. ancient ones were the ones that ruled the earth. And, uh, and then something happened, or they still are embedded somewhere in the, in deep rock or something, you know. The except, Leviathan. Yeah, except that occasionally they might mani- terrestrials. Yeah. And that's, uh, could be, could be. Of course, you know, John Keel, who, who you know, you knew and, uh, you know, I was friends with, he thought that this thing was not at all extraterrestrial, but it was, um, much more closer to our environment. He talked of ultra-terrestrials. Of course, the yeah. late Mactonies wrote about crypto-terrestrials. They're here. Yeah. It would explain one thing. It would explain the the, the amounts. 
of experiences because uh, you know now we, we wouldn't be talking about someone what to come across the galaxy although if they did have some kind of like stargate then it wouldn't be a big deal you know for them to travel anyway oh what a nice little ship that would be we wouldn't have to worry about warp eight Right. <laughs> Wouldn't have to worry about dilithium crystals, Captain. Because this is what used to bother, you know, Heineck and the old, uh, you know, the more, the, the, especially astronomers are always complaining, not about the possibility of life in, in space, because most, even the, even the skeptics now mostly believe in that, that there's sure there must be life, but that that lies because of the distances are coming here. But to me, that's a false argument, because if we're dealing with some civilization that's been, let's say, half a million years, remember the old principle of Arthur C. Clarke, any technology that we don't understand is magic. So look at how we have advanced in 100 years and 200 years. I mean, it, the stuff we can do now, right. if you lived in the 18th century, would, would look totally unbelievable. And yet, in only 200 years, we've done that. Okay, so I have in my hand an iPhone, okay? Me and 45 million other people. I have an iPhone. Take that back 100 years, 1910. What the heck would they do with it? There's no cell phone. No. There's no cell phone network. They don't know anything about integrated circuits. They could possibly get the thing to turn on, but the battery is going to disappear yeah. in five or six hours. Which creates an interesting question with the whole concept of um, back engineering. You know, so let's say let's assume that Roswell or any of these other incidents, at least some of them are true, and the government did recover stuff, and they're trying to duplicate it. it depends how how advanced these people are. You know, if they're if they're just a little bit more advanced than us, maybe we could get somewhere. But if they if it's totally like you're saying now, like an iPhone a hundred years ago, they can break down that metal a million times, but are they going to get the, sh the thing working? Probably not. They'll probably break it. And there's no cell phone network, so what they can do with it? Nothing. There's no internet. What would the world be without an internet? And that, okay, let's take ourselves back to that journey, back through time, back to the early part of the civilization. Now, Charles Fort said, we are property. Right. Okay, so is it possible that humans were seeded by an intelligent species indigenous to this planet, ET, whatever. They do genetic manipulation. They bring us about. They come around and check in on us. What does that do to our religions around the world? And this is one of the things I alluded to earlier. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the religions, um, it, it would force an entire new paradigm. But it's interesting, and this is something we'll be covering very soon in, in our second issue of, uh, of Open Minds magazine, that, uh, and you probably all saw this in the, in the, in the news or in the web, that uh, lately the Vatican astronomers seem to be very much talking about this. Uh, they had a big conference in December at, um, at the Vatican Pontific Pontifical Academy of Sciences, very official, high-profile conference on astrobiology, in of which most of the discussions were about searching for life in outer space and uh, search for planets and how many planets are in the universe and so on. The chief Vatican astronomer, uh, who's uh, originally from, is a Jesuit. Most of the Vatican astronomers are Jesuits. His name is Funes, uh, Gabriel Funes. Uh, he obviously is an astronomer, has a PhD, but he's also a priest. 
He gave an interview that was published in the Vatican Observer, which is the official newspaper of the Vatican, and this was published in um, a couple of years ago. And the title of the, the headline, the title of the article was quite revealing, The Extraterrestrial is My Brother. So I think that the, the, the Vatican, this is my own interpretation, they learned something, you know, from the Galileo affair and from Copernicus and all that. I, I, I think this, they see that that's where astronomy is going. That only took and, 600 uh, years. Yeah, so. and the, but at least they learned that even if it took them that long. And this time they don't want to be behind the train, they want to be ahead. So it's quite significant. Of course, theologically, the existence of aliens creates a host of problems for the Catholic or the Christian religion, not so much for other religions. Uh, in fact, the Quran even says that there are many worlds. But the, the Catholic religion has a, a little problem there, not so much with the creation of, of other worlds, because obviously God, the Creator, could do as many wor worlds as He pleases, but with the whole uh, problem of um, Jesus, you know, and the, and the original sin. And this is, was discussed in our article where we quote all these different priests and theologians and so on. How do you deal with a race that didn't have an original sin? Or did they get a revelation on their own? Did God also incarnate on their planet? And so on. So this is why traditionally the church has been very leery of, of approaching this. However, even the Vatican has had ufologists. And the most famous was uh, the late Monsignor Balducci whom I met, and he was a demonologist. He was a, a Vatican chief exorcist. Fascinating personality. Okay, did he believe in E.T.? Yeah. Okay. He had a famous saying. He had, he had a few things that he always said. First, he said, I am not the spokesman for the Vatican. I am just Monsignor Balducci, and I am interested in UFOs. Meaning, not, not just because he's a theologian from the Vatican. He says, unless you're dealing with specific Catholic dogma, you have a freedom to discuss any subject. So that was the first thing, although he was always misquoted by everybody. Vatican priest says that, blah, 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 but he always clarified that. The other one he says is that, that he believed, that was his own conclusion, that uh, these were ETs, because he said, angels and demons do not need machines to fly around. So if you need a machine, uh, you're not an angel or a demon, because they can fly by themselves. And, uh, well, he certainly wouldn't want to admit that the advanced being or beings that they talk about were really ET or whatever. He used to go to UFO congresses and yeah, he, he spoke was, at the X yeah, conference. Oh yeah, he was even yeah. at the X. The last time I saw him was at the X conference. So he was very outspoken. But like I said, he always said, this is my own opinion. I'm not speaking for the Vatican. So in prior to Balducci, we even had another character, uh, another Jesuit. Balducci was not a Jesuit, but most of these others are, who's called uh, Father Grasso, Domenico Grasso. And he was a theologian. And he went to some UFO symposiums in Europe in the 1960s and 70s, where he gave papers and everything too. So even the Vatican, I think, over the years, although at that time it seemed like there were only these occasionally some priests that would go to an, an event. Now it seems much more official. Now you have the Vatican chief astronomer giving interviews in the Vatican newspaper. There's been sort of a, a, an official position taken now. Because to me, a headline like that, the extraterrestrial is my brother, in the Vatican Observer, that's not coincidental. I mean, you know, anybody that's worked on the media, 
anybody can write an article or something, but when it comes to the titles and the covers, that's editorial. That's done by the publisher, you know, and they, they're the ones that determine what is the headline. Maybe we'll have a big disclosure announcement when uh, the Pope goes to Portugal. <laughs> He's on his way to... Fat I chance. Know. I don't believe yeah. that no, disclosure is going to happen. I'm not the, no. the biggest fan of disclosure. I believe that once, when I was new in this phenomenon, and um, there was a story in the U.S. News and World Report that Jimmy Carter was going to have a big release, and me being a naive guy who just had come from South America at that time, I saw something in U.S. News and World Report, and it sounded like legit, and I believed it. But when that didn't happen, you know, after that, I, well, I mean, I, I wish there was, there was some, there's some, there seems to be some trend uh, by different governments to release documents, yes, but the big disclosure, maybe it's a very long-term process, though, and, and it's just like a, you know, like a very slow, that's possible. But not, I don't believe in the dramatic press conference of the president or whatever. Or Unless, Obama trotting out an yeah. alien on a, on, a, on a special broadcast on yeah, TV. That's hiding. It's really Fife Symington. Well, yeah. Yeah, he tried it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Takes off his Fife Symington mask and he's E.T. The mask is off. And he says, somebody stop me. Yeah, right. And then what does he do? He turns around years later and fesses up and says, well, right. actually, yeah, I sorry. did Yeah, it. sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to insult you. Yeah. <laughs> this, remember, this guy was impeached. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As governor of Arizona, this guy was thrown out of office for doing things that aren't kosher. Now, maybe he was pardoned by President Clinton for his crimes. But at that point, he had been convicted. Listen. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Hi, this is Don Ecker and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that George Snorri? We have Antonio Hodeus and Christopher O'Brien, the subject ranging from E.T. in ancient times to Governor Fife Symington. Okay, so we are going far afield, but let's go back to mm -hmm. these ancient stories. Right. Now, in every era of history, we see something where we've encountered strange things that fly in the sky. Yeah. One of the articles I have on the second issue was very interesting. I really enjoyed researching that article. I call it the first UFO wave in Mexico. And basically what happened was for a period of about 10 years prior to the arrival of the Spanish. So uh, Cortes arrived, the conquistador arrived in 1519. Beginning around 510, 1510, there was a whole series of what they, at the time they were called omens. Weird stuff seen over Mexico, which was some sort of a, it was interpreted as a sign at the time that 
time was up, basically, and that there was this prophecy about the return of Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl yeah. And that's why when the Spanish arrived, initially there was very little resistance, because they thought they were, the, if not the gods themselves, the representatives of the gods. And Cortes, who was a ruthless but a very clever, intelligent man, uh, who had this um, mistress called Malinche, who was an Indian uh, woman, who spoke many languages, uh, he must have been informed right away of this, so then he used it to his advantage. Now, one of the more popular stories about alleged ETs goes back to 1897, the airships, and... Oh, sure. That's a real can of worms. And, yeah. of course, there is that incident at Aurora, Texas, yeah. where ET yeah, was allegedly buried. Any truth to that? I think there's some truth to the general airship wave, but the standards of the press at the time were very loose. There were so many competition in every city had about seven or eight or ten newspapers, so they usually were trying to outstage each other, and they would very often resort to hoaxes. Whereas now, if a newspaper creates a hoax, you know, that reporter gets fired and all that, but so the standard... Are you sure about that? Yeah, I was just going to say. Well, <laughs> no, I think if it's a reporter for a major newspaper, there were cases, you know, where people faked interviews. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, in any case, I think there were many hoaxes, but on the on the other hand, this thing was so widespread that something must have been seen. And uh, because it, it's a true UFO wave from a sociological point of view. I mean, it was all over the United States. And then, of course, it wasn't only in the United States either. Yeah, it was New Zealand. Yeah, the New Zealand, uh, Europe too. In 1909, there was another one in England. Keel, as you know, wrote a great deal about this. I've seen some of the newspaper clippings. Jacobs, of course, David Jacobs, he believes that that's when the whole abduction project, quote, started. He's a historian, you know, David Jacobs, and oddly enough, he, even though he, he believes in the, all this theory of the hybrids and all that, but when it comes to historical cases, he's very conservative. He's a skeptic when it comes to ancient astronauts and all that, but he does believe in the airship flap, and he thinks that that's when it all started. That's when the, 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 the first abductions took place, which of course are not reported in the newspapers at the time. But, um. Well, there was a calf that was abducted. <laughs> Yeah, although I believe that case was later found to be a hoax. Yeah. One of the things I wonder about here, though, with all the abductions, how far back can we take that? I mean, if we have contacts in ancient times, biblical times, where we come into contact or we're taken aboard weird craft, isn't that the same thing as the abduction? It happens. Uh, I was just talking briefly before about the, the Mexico cases and before the arrival of the Spanish. One of the cases I discovered, and this is, by the way, it's in all the chronicles written usually by the missionaries or in some cases by the conquistadors or even by the Indians themselves who wrote them. Some of these books were even written in Nahuatl language. So it's a variety of sources. And one of the more fascinating cases is what I call there like maybe the first abduction. It, it deals with a peasant who gets taken by an eagle. But then, and the eagle takes him to a cave. And then the, the eagle, eagle being something that flies. Well, the eagle talks. And this is, uh, for of course, first of all, eagles don't talk. Second, as you know... There's not any that you've met. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least the ones I've seen. Second, in many of the UFO literature, as you know, there are these, um, what they call the screen memories, where people think that they saw owls or raccoons or something like that, and they were really the, the aliens, but because the mind, you know, creates tricks. 
So here they take uh, this guy, the eagle talks, then they take him that he has to go see the emperor Moctezuma. And then, again, we were talking about this earlier. He, boom, is like teletransported. Somehow he's in a room where Moctezuma is sleeping. And they give him a cigar. And they say, because tomorrow you're going to come see Moctezuma. And he has to believe that you were here. So burn the thigh with a cigar. And, of course, the guy doesn't want to do it. The emperor is going to get killed. He said, don't worry, he's, he's not going to wake up. So he does it. He burns him with a, with a cigar. That being done, the eagle takes him back to the field where he was originally abducted. So even that is similar. He gets back to the original spot. But they tell him that he has to go see the, the, the king and tell him this warning that they're giving him. So he goes, and Montezuma receives him. And first, you know, is, is suspicious of the guy. But then the guy says, so, well, you know, sorry, your majesty, whatever. But, uh, you know, this wasn't my fault. I was told to do this. Look at your thigh. And sure enough, he opens and the th there's a wound in his thigh. And then Montezuma says, yes, I dreamt that someone was burning my thigh. This is all in the Chronicle by a guy called Father Diego Duran, written in the 1560s or whatever. Then, unfortunately for the guy, even though the eagle had told him, don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you, then Montezuma goes into a rage and throws him in a, in a prison. And he says, and don't give him food, let him starve there. And that's, so the first abductee didn't do very well. And that's the last we heard of this guy. However, there is a 17th century church in Mexico City, which I was able to visit, which has the episode. Is in a, in a stone pillar. They actually have the episode of the of the Indian being grabbed by the eagle. Of course, it looks like an eagle, not like a UFO. So you have an abduction type scenario. This is in the 1500s, and there are other cases. Usually, when this happened in the in the Middle Ages or in the Renaissance, even up to the 1700s, of course, it could be dangerous, and because it would be immediately uh, interpreted by, as demonology. The demons could do this kind of stuff, according to the old beliefs. The demons could take one and teletron and take him to another place and play tricks. Uh, uh, it could be the dangerous. The trickster would be be brought up at some point. Yeah. Oh yes, we haven't had the trickster on the show this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say we weren't going to have the trickster, but the trickster has nonetheless decided. I couldn't. Sorry, Gene. I just couldn't. The devil it. made you do it. The trickster made you do it. Right. Okay. So now that's the other thing too here we have not just et type beings we have leprechauns and all these other mm -hmm. creatures right these short statured creatures yep. and now we have the greys so can we look at leprechauns here and the greys here and say you know what there's a family resemblance yeah yeah obviously the great there's some of the many of the alien um, creatures reporting in uh, especially when you go to the old cases in the 50s and when they used to land and little, little guys would come with the shovels or whatever yeah it's it's some of those are quite similar in, in appearance to some of the creatures you have in folklore. And this, of course, is what led Valet to shift. You know, Valet's first two books, he was a extraterrestrial, you know. He thought the UFOs were coming from outer space and in devices and all that, and machines. But then he reassessed his, his position with this famous book called Passport to Magonia, which later was kind of reissued in dimensions. It was 
pretty much the same book where he did all these comparisons with folklore. Of course, there's always a sociological component, which is true for modern times and is true for ancient times. So maybe you're seeing something, but your mind will interpret it in something that is somewhat familiar to you, you know. So the old people had these various beliefs about leprechauns and and all these all these fairies and all these kinds of things and our mythology is uh, aliens you know, like the dropa they were considered i mean they were like four foot tall and the dropa in, in china sure allegedly allegedly yeah because that i don't know how, how valid that story is but it's, it's a fascinating story but i did some research on that case this is where a ufo was supposed to have crashed in in an area of tibet or china near tibet people intermingled and eventually created a small race of Tibetans or whatever. And there were these stone discs, allegedly. And this was published in some uh, Russian magazines in the 60s. But to this day, I've never seen any of the discs. Uh, Where it, are the Dropa stones? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of stones, we look at things like Stonehenge. Other ancient artifacts. Of course, the pyramids of Egypt. We say, you know what, the pyramids of Egypt, they couldn't do that without some help. Of course... Nowadays, we say, yeah, I guess they did. But is there any evidence of any outside intervention in creating artifacts of that type? Not direct evidence. I think it's a matter of interpretation. And, of course, when people like Vondanik and goes to, to these countries, you know, at one time he was practically declared, I think, persona non grata in Peru or Bolivia or something because they, they thought it was an insult. He was insulting their own culture by saying, no, you guys were too stupid, too ignorant so to, to do, you know, Machu Picchu or Tiahuanaco, so it had to be the aliens. But again, you know, if uh, some of these things, there are legends and that the gods had something to do with it or whatever. But, but the monuments themselves, I don't think it's a very strong proof, except maybe Baalbek. Baalbek is uh, the famous temple in Lebanon, and this thing has these massive boulders that they're so humongous that I don't think even our most modern technology no, we can can't. move. No, we can't. It's a thousand tons, I think, yeah. is the big one. And it's, it's, uh, it's actually uh, a, worked, it's a worked stone. It's not a natural stone. Right. There is a problem of the transportation, even in Stonehenge. How did they move? Oh, Easter Island. They're all these places, they're the, one of the things that had led some people to the ancient astronaut is because not even so much how they did it, but how they moved. How were they able to move without modern technology? Yet other people have other theories that maybe the ancients had some knowledge that we don't, and perhaps they could alter matter and then make it weightless or something. I mean, I'm speculating, but well, maybe, maybe they can yeah. just build it right in position, assemble it, yeah, by altering the molecules around them, right, in position. And in modern times, there's a, a, a this is Coral Castle, you know, in Florida. This is something mostly likes. Right, he yeah. lives in Florida now. Maybe he wants to build his own Coral Castle. Uh, but again, this guy using very simple uh, tools was able to move these huge boulders. Now, he never said they were aliens or whatever, so he knew something. He was, I think it was a pretty simple thing, but somehow, whatever the simple thing is, all these engineers and stuff. I remember there was one show, I think, in Discovery a few years ago when they, they tried to build the, the pyramid using the tools that the Egyptians would have had. This pyramid was like a tenth of the real pyramid, and it took them a long time. I mean, these guys were having a hard time trying to, trying to do it. And these were all these modern engineers. Well, of course, then the thing is here, they didn't have the patience right. then that they did, you know, 2,000 years ago. They were able to 
basically take a project yeah. and supposedly spend a hundred years on it. They did now. If the, you don't get built in ten minutes, we have no the, patience. The anymore. Gothic cathedrals in Europe, sure, which are sure. wonderful pieces of architecture, literally, and nobody has ever said they were done by aliens or anything, uh, because we, there we have a record how they were done. Although it has led to other conspiracy theories with the Freemasons or whatever, but those things would take a hundred years, one hundred fifty yeah. years. Yeah, they were in no hurry. However long it took, you know. I mean, it, when it was finished, it was finished. I love the story of the Peruvians trying to duplicate moving one of the uh, you know megalithic uh, sized stones, and they only got it just part way up the hill. And yeah, right, it fell over, and people got killed. And no, there was something going on. I mean, it maybe it wasn't aliens, but they 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 knew something. I think about about manipulating matter or something. Oh, they oh they had some some techniques of some kind. Because it reverts back to the legends of advanced civilizations, and you have to think here: if something happened that destroyed our civilization and we think it's going to happen in 2012 whatever something happens a thousand two thousand years mm -hmm. from now what's going to be left really right imagine if something if we did collapse and then but somehow some people survive but they forget the knowledge or what and, and then like you say 500 years later with some they try to reconstruct what happened yeah we they probably wouldn't get a very precise uh, accounting right of what what our civilization was because whatever all these computer disks all this stuff would be unusable so Battlestar Galactica now ladies and gentlemen the TV show Battlestar Galactica the secret is that it takes place 150,000 years ago they land on earth and become our forebears right but nothing is left of their civilization a few hundred or a few thousand years later. Yeah, sucks when that happens. Yeah, it really does. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Antonio Huneus is with us. Chris O'Brien is our co-host. Chris, follow up with some more questions before we end this session. Yeah, I've always been really fascinated by the historical uh, cases um, that are out there. And, you know, I have a sense that, you, at least based on my research, that we, we do see some very, um, very strong correlations that run cross-culturally um, from continent to continent. What do you think of Sagan's um, assertion that if, if ETs ever did come, that it was a big deal, it was a grand event, they would, it would be a grand arrival. That that there would be no real um, 
need really to do clandestine type programs like uh, the abduction scenario or hybridizations or something like that akin to that what what do you think of that idea that possibly et types did come but um left a huge footprint at the time i mean do you see any evidence of that or do you think it's something that's been more mythical and, and legendary well if et did come and were some of these gods of of pagan mythology which is what danik and insitchin and all these people maintain then obviously it was a big deal you know but then it then it, it, it became a religion you know we make we made them gods which would have not necessarily been the case they were just more advanced than us but it's hard to tell it's it's it, it, a lot of this stuff basically comes out you know it's a matter of interpretation there's no question that there's a lot of interesting accounts though from old legends and mythology and folklore and and like i said even the paintings you know remember the one in in kosovo it's in kosovo it's a it's in a, it's in a medieval monastery where you see these two it's a, a standard medieval fresco of the crucifixion and then on both sides there's two objects and one really looks like the mercury capsule and there's like a little guy inside it and there's there's no dispute that that's a, it's a real painting it, it was done in the 1300s some people try to say well it's the moon and the sun i mean obviously skeptics are always going to try to come up with some explanation but it's quite uncanny because the thing actually looks like the mercury capsule and it's got a guy crouched inside in one of them the other one is like a ball or something i forgot right now so there is um compelling evidence not definitive but certainly interesting evidence have you seen those really cool medieval um, woodcuts, I think, from China, where you have the uh, the Chinese lord kind of scratching his chin, looking at this like weird sort of flying saucer-looking object that seems to be landed next to him. It's about three feet high and about five feet in diameter. Not very well known, but I have seen no, it. No, uh, I'm not sure. It not, doesn't, doesn't uh, I, I can't think of it right now. Maybe I have. There's a series of them. If you, have a, if you have a picture of it, I'd love to see it. Of course, in China, and like I said, mentioned earlier, I did do this article. Then it gets mixed up with the legends of the dragons, you know, that flew and whatever dragons. Uh, which again, when you think of it, uh, Quetzalcoatl, going back to Mexico, that's a dragon too, right? Yeah, it's, it's a flying, serpent, it's a flying yeah. uh, serpent, which gave them knowledge and all that. So there's a whole field there, and. Um, I think normally what happens is a lot of the archaeologists, the, the mainstream historians, they don't want to touch it at all, you know, because it 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 goes counter against you know their academic uh, beliefs and paradigms. But occasionally you do find some some people that do dare to cross that and and, and do some some original thinking. Way back in the fifties, Mosley and Yona Fortner went to Peru to look at the Nazca lines, which right. supposedly you only see these lines in their proper proportions if you are airborne. So what's the story? That's true. I mean, it's true that you can see them on the ground, and I, I, and I have to clarify that. I, unfortunately, I have not seen them, but uh, I've read plenty of it. You do see them on the ground, but all you see on the ground, especially if you, if you're towards a hill, you see something going up, but you do not see the pattern. If you want to see the entire pattern, you do have to fly. Now, uh, there are some scientists, I forgot his name, I think he was some 
some scientist with UCLA many years ago, he had an in, uh, in, uh, interpretation that, yes, these people were able to fly. Yeah, the kite but one. They, no, well, the kite one, that was Woodman, Jim Woodman with the balloon. I, I, don't, I don't buy that one, even though technically he proved that they could have done it. But there's no other lore about balloons. If they had balloons... Well, the guys, the, the guys that uh, would actually be flown as a passenger on a kite, that was uh -huh. another theory, oh, too. The kite, they, yeah, they found, yeah. they found uh, burials. I, I think it's more likely that they were able to fly out of the body because they, a lot of those cultures have a heavy shamanistic tradition and they also have the use of hallucinogenic drugs, peyote and the mushrooms and all this kind of stuff. And ayahuasca. Right there, ayahuasca. And obviously, people that have studied these things, when you go into an altered state, you can go out of your body. And then you could, so then if you, they went out of their body, then they could appreciate and maybe follow the patterns of these Nazca lines. The most of the original uh, theory was by Maria Reiche, you know, the, the German born, who became a Peruvian citizen after she, since she, her whole mission in life was to save the lines. And she did prevent them, you know, they were going to do the Pan American Highway and just destroy the lines. And she created created such a fuss that they diverted the, the highway. But she thought it was some kind of um, astronomical calendar, astronomical map. But that doesn't seem, most most scholars and archaeologists these days don't, don't believe in it. The more prevalent theory now is it has, has something to do with um, water, finding water, under, underwater streams. But, you know, they keep changing. They, obviously, the fact that they keep coming up with theories is that they haven't discovered what the true purpose was. They don't want uh, to admit it might be E.T. Now, are no. they still there, the Nazca lines? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. All right. They are, and they're not just in Peru. If you go further, you cross the border into Chile, you find them in northern Chile, too, around a, a, a city called Arica, which is right in the border of Chile and Peru. And if you still go further down, and there was a wonderful um, episode in uh, one of the shows of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, where they showed what is known as the Atacama Giant. And this is a figure that is on a, on a, on a hill in the Atacama Desert, which is a very, very dry area. Again, if you are seeing it from the ground, you would see like two avenues that go up. The, basically, what you're seeing is the, the legs. The thighs, actually, of the giant. Jim Woodwin, who is this explorer, who, who, who is the one that has done the most research on this, had a, a chart where he showed that, that the Atacama giant was so huge that the Empire State Building would only reach the thigh of the Atacama giant. That's how big this wow. thing was. But of course, it's, it's a glyph, you know, it's, 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 a, it's not a sculpture. It's, on a, on, it's like, like the Nazca lines, it's on the mountain. They call them geoglyphs. What was there? And it kind of looks like robotic. It has like a strange face and it's holding like a, like a dead lizard or something. And again, you have to fly in a helicopter in order to really appreciate it. Now, you've explored this stuff for 35 years or so, good portion of your life. Have you ever seen anything yourself, Antonio Huneus? That's strange, unusual. Well, I, I have seen UFOs, but nothing like a spectacular. I, I had a couple of, of sightings over the years. In fact, I even saw a UFO about a month ago in Mexico City at the big symposium, the, the, the World UFO Summit that Jaime Maussan put. And believe me, if I had read about it, I probably would not believed it, but I saw it with my own eyes. Everybody says you see a lot of UFOs in Mexico. Well, I did. Of course, it might have been a balloon. 
I, I cannot say for sure, but, but uh, what happened is that as I was walking towards the, the World Trade Center, which is where this very large symposium was, was held, and we do have them, by the way, on the website too, on the openminds.tv. We have a short article with the pictures that were taken by this Italian contactee known as uh, called Antonio Ursi. And so as I walk in between the hotel and the conference hall, I see all these people there, you know, and, and like with cameras and stuff. So I asked them, and sure enough, that was Ursi and some of these other people, and they were seeing this UFO. And initially, initially, I couldn't see anything. It was daytime. Eventually, yes, I saw this little white dot very high in the sky. So that was that. That was that was interesting, but not, you know, I mean, it really didn't do anything. It was just sitting there. But many, many years ago in Chile, in the mountains near Santiago that was a more interesting sighting in terms of what the UFO did and basically again I went with some people there and there was a contactee also who said that they, we were going to see UFOs and sure enough we did and there were other people and we had binoculars and everything and basically what I saw was an object I could never say that it was an artificial I don't know what it, what it was I mean it didn't, I didn't see a machine I just saw a thing that looked like a star had the you know it's just like a point of light it, it looked like a star it had the luminosity of the star but it sure didn't move like a star it was doing like this you know going in zigzag and stopping and going around in circles and there was no optical illusion no no okay. no because sure. i was with other people we right. i saw with binoculars they gave me the binoculars i saw it. i didn't photograph it you know it's not easy to photograph these things I, I even saw experience that firsthand in Mexico. Unless the thing is very close, of course, and then you have it, you can see it on your digital camera. If you just see a little point in the middle of the sky, it really takes a lot of training to point and to manage to. Well, Chris is probably more experienced here. He can probably add something. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, people often ask me, well, why don't we have any more pictures of UFOs? Because oftentimes people are so uh, mesmerized by mm -hmm. the sighting, they just forget that they have a cell phone with a camera. Or they forget they have a camera right and then other times people just don't have the um like you said the training they the don't training. have the visual yeah, it uh, actually takes training yeah and uh you know i think we're, we're going to see this slowly change and i think we're already seeing um a change we're seeing more and more supposed photographic evidence right um, oh yeah the internet is full of them right i mean yeah, it doesn't mean they're all real but uh <laughs> but uh, certainly there's no shortage so i and then uh, i i had a couple of other but n none of my sightings have been uh, spectacular the more interesting would be the one in chile in 88 because the the, the 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 behavior of the ufo was so strange and it was nothing i could ever explain it did not seem at all like it certainly was not a natural phenomenon a natural phenomenon and I would not do those things. But I never saw a structure craft either. So I cannot say I saw a spaceship or anything like that. I saw Tinkerbell. an unexplained light behaving extremely weird. 100,001 stories. You've reported some of them on the show. Do you think there can ever be a disclosure? Is there anything that anyone can disclose? Do we know anything? We have tons of data because, and especially what's changed a lot, and Gene, you've been long enough in this as I, as I have, that in the past, it was very hard to get stuff from around the world unless you travel there. And some countries were off limits. You were not going to get stuff from the Soviet Union. Once in a while, some report was published by Sputnik magazine or something. But now with the Internet, everything happens instantly. They see a UFO in Pakistan. You are reading it with 
within two hours. So we have a lot of data. Of course, a lot of it has to be filtered. Do we have a final comprehensive uh, explanation? No. But the more data we gather, maybe we will eventually come up with something. So basically the governments don't have any information. That's the other theory, you know, the, the Heineck even, the late Dr. Heineck, you know, who worked for Blue Book and all that. He always used to say that the cover-up, he said that there is a cover-up, that the cover-up is a cover-up of ignorance. Right. They don't have the answers. And they're supposed to be like daddy, you know. I mean, they're the U.S. government, you know. They're supposed to know what happened. Well, that's the problem, so, too. You see, nowadays nobody believes what the government says. Right. Yeah, we want the government to tell I us know. what they know about UFOs. <laughs> Yeah, I know. If the government com tomorrow came and said, you know, this How is what UFOs are, them? half of the people would probably don't believe it. They say, oh, they're just they're inventing this to cover up something else, you know. So I don't know. But uh, Or they don't know what they're doing. In fact, I can well believe they'd recover advanced technology and stick it in Warehouse 13 somewhere. Right. Yes, I believe they probably have some stuff. I don't think they have as much as all these fantastic UFOs or whatever. That they, you know, but they probably do have artifacts. I, w I would think they do have something, but they don't have an. They don't seem to have a final answer. Or the other interpretation is that they know the truth, and the truth is so horrible that they are covering up for our own good because there would be panic or whatever. But but you know. governments are not that competent. Government by nature is incompetent. It only reacts to emergencies. Correct. It doesn't anticipate emergencies. How could they do anything like that? How could they possibly have a long-range plan that lasts decade after I know. decade? I know. I just can't be made to believe well, that. I think they have a, a heck of a lot more data than they admit. That's why they're a heck oh, of a yeah. lot more confused they than we are. They have data. <laughs> I they think have. they're way more confused I mean, than I'm we sure are. they have. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not even debatable. I mean, we know for a fact, it's historically yeah. proven, that the government has investigated UFOs for, for decades. Even at one time, even officially, you know, I mean, publicly, officially, and not just the U.S. government, the Russians have done it, the French do it, the English, and so on. So a lot of these countries have files, ex, so-called X-files. Yeah, where's all that camera, the gun camera footage? Yeah. You know they've got tons of that. Yeah, because you, you hear reports of many witnesses, you know, that, were, that went on scramble missions, and yeah, they would have to have gun camera. That's how you assess, you know, your potential enemy. Where do we find more information about Open Minds magazine, which is apparently now available on the newsstands. In uh, openminds.tv. Just, it's a very simple address, openminds.tv. You can, you can subscribe to the magazine, you can read my stories, you can read the stories that I, oh, my colleagues are doing, Mauricio Bayata and Alejandro Rojas. Uh, we have also have guests, uh, you know, writers, so it's uh, other people that are not employees of our company, they write, they publish there as well. So we basically, through the website, or go to Barnes and Nobles, go to Borders, and I think you will, you will be pleased. It's a beautiful looking magazine, and it's got great stories. Is it all UFOs or what? Basically, it's all UFOs. It's not like Fate. It's not a paranormal magazine. It's, it's basically a, a, a UFO magazine. But you don't take an editorial position? No, no. We have a mission statement, and in, in our position is basically, let's go after it. You know, let's, let's, let's find the evidence. We don't know what's happening, yeah, but we sure as hell truth. Yeah, want to find, find out. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we're not promoting any any given view that aliens are wonderful and going to come to save us, or aliens are horrible and going to enslave us. No, we, I mean, we may allude to 
some of these things in, in a given article, depending on the story, but uh, our editorial position is, is neutral. Professor O'Brien, where do we find more of the things that you do? Well, Gene, our Paracast listeners can go to OurStrangePlanet.com. Uh, my entire database from my years in the San Luis Valley is located there, and uh, also information about my, my books. Uh, my latest book is Stalking the Trickster. And no more trickster imitations, please. Oh, Gene, come on. <laughs> Just one more time. All right, one more time before we go. No. Did you ever have the author of the trickster, Hanson, George Hanson? No. Huh? Yeah, Maybe you should. Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, real good. Antonio Hineas, thanks for joining us this Gene? week on the Paracast. Yeah. A pleasure. Good seeing you after what? 20 years? Something like that. 15 <laughs> years, whatever. Chris O'Brien, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Gene. Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Powercast.